0: Welcome to Bed Crime Stories Podcast. I'm your host, T. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, bed Crimers. As always, I wish you the best. To anyone new here, a warm welcome. Thank you for checking out my channel. Let me just ask that after listening to or watching this video, if you learned something or enjoyed it, please do me a favor and smash that like button. Now let's dig in. Yesterday, Brian Koberger, who is accused of the brutal crime in Moscow, Idaho, that led to the deaths of Kaylee Gonsalves, Madison Mogan, Ethan Chapin, and Zana Kurnodal, attended his arraignment hearing to enter his plea. Anyone following the case knows by now that Koberger opted to stand silent, forcing the judge to enter a not guilty plea for him. Inside the courtroom for the arraignment, were Kaylee and Madison's families. Many are wondering how the families felt, being once again in the same small space with a man accused of harming their kids. Here's what Steve Gonzalez told News Nation about that yesterday. Participant in the process, so that kind of changes it for me. Before,
1: he was just uh, somebody that was dragged into a court that was probably surprised to be there. Now he's an active participant participate and um to me it's it, it, it's i'm in a competitive person so i'm like all right it's on it's on it's it's up. it's us versus them and um we're gonna lay this we're gonna lay this evidence out and we're gonna go from there
2: how was christy um today and olivia and olivia brought um kaylee's baby niece with her how did they do today how did they get through it
1: the girls struggle. The girls have a harder time with it. And, um, you know, it takes weeks for us to just, like, talk it through and, like, you know, maybe watch a couple movies, do a couple different things, like some fat, you know, family gatherings. The girls are very much, you know, I don't let this guy... Mess with my emotions, but the girls, that's just the way it is, you know, and I I don't fight it. I just understand that they have a different way of processing pain and uh, this anguish. So then we just work together and um,
0: support them. So Steve Gonsalves clearly has been told by someone that Koberger wants to play an active role in his defense. This may explain who made the decision. To stand silent yesterday. Perhaps this was Koberger's idea, and maybe he learned about this option during his extensive criminal justice studies. This standing silent bit is actually a legal strategy known as standing mute, and it relies on an Idaho criminal rule that requires a judge to then enter a not guilty plea on a defendant's behalf. According to University of Idaho law professor Samuel Newton, there are several reasons why Koberger may have done this. One, he may want to avoid the criticism that could come with a certain plea. Per Professor Newton, a not guilty plea may spark public outrage because it would signal to some that Koberger is not taking responsibility For his alleged crime. Two, it's possible he did this because the prosecutors and defense team are negotiating a plea deal behind the scenes. And three, it could simply be that Koberger is being difficult and it could be him attempting to show that he's the smartest guy in the courtroom. Perhaps he wants to take all the lessons he learned in class and apply them to his case. But many would probably like to caution Koberger and let him know that he's not the smartest guy in the room, even if he thinks he is. Many people have made a connection between serialist Dennis Rader and Koberger because we know Koberger studied Rader under Dr. Catherine Ramslin at DeSales University. Koberger took a class there called Extreme Violence and one of the required textbooks was the biography of serialist Dennis Rader, a.k.a. BTK. Thus, Koberger is well acquainted with Dennis Rader and his modus operandi and crimes. You have to wonder if Koberger, if he is convicted of the crime, admired Dennis Rader, and maybe even wanted to emulate him. In some ways, I mean, if he is an aspiring serialist, which we aren't sure of, then Koberger would likely have viewed Rader as something of a celebrity in true crime. I say that because Rader committed his brutal crimes in which 10 people died between 1974 and 1991, but he wasn't caught until 2005. That means Rader evaded the authorities, for three decades. Let's say Kohlberger is found guilty of the crime for this discussion. I know he's innocent until proven guilty. For the sake of this discussion, let's just say he's guilty. Some experts are saying they believe, one, this crime at 1122 King Road had to be Kohlberger's first, and that's because he made rookie mistakes. Listen to what Cheryl Mack McCollum, an award-winning crime scene investigator in Atlanta and the director of the Cold Case Investigative Research Institute, said about this on yesterday's episode of Surviving the Survivor. I'll leave a link to the channel in the description.
1: Raul Thomas,
0: uh, Mac,
1: he writes he's following the BTK script. I know you know Carrie. Uh, Carrie is coming on our show Wednesday at 1230 p.m. to discuss some of this. Do you buy this at all, that he's sort of following uh, the BTK serial killer, otherwise known as Dennis Rader, otherwise known as the father of Kerry Rawson?
2: I don't think there's any question that he has had the opportunity to study more than one serial killer. I mean, early on, several of us talked about Ted Bundy. Several of us talked about, you know, you know, Kerry's father. And I think, you know, when you're studying at the level that he was, he's already— Done his undergraduate, he's already gotten a master's, now he's in a PhD program. He's well versed in some of these folks, but that's another reason that I don't believe he's got this trail of bodies anywhere because he ain't no good at it. He used his own car, he's caught on video, his phone is pinging, (laughs) he shuts his phone off during the murders, he's seen circling for four or five times before the murders. (laughs) then speeding off after he got a traffic ticket again, like Bundy. So there's mistakes that he made that if he had been somebody killing for four or five years, he would have gotten better. He would have made improvements. He didn't do that here. He got caught twice on a whisper stop.
0: If you take into account all the mistakes that McCollum listed there, it does hint that Koberger was new to this level of crime. Maybe he harmed animals before. It sounds like he was a peeping Tom during those 12 visits. His phone indicates he made to the neighborhood where the students lived in Moscow, Idaho. It also sounds like he was a burglar because, according to the unnamed source who spoke to Dateline, the police believe Koberger broke into the residence of a female friend of his at Washington State University and moved things around in the residence, prompting this female friend to seek his advice on how to discourage burglars from picking her house. And this is when Koberger helped her install security cameras, allegedly. Dennis Rader is like a mad genius compared to Koberger. He eluded law enforcement for 30 years. And what's really astonishing about that is Rader enjoyed toying with the authorities. He did this by sending letters to them via media outlets to interact with the police when you're a serialist is a risky business, but Rader's ego and personality overrode his rational mind. He simply couldn't help himself. Rader began this little game of leaving notes right away in 1974, the year he committed his first crime against the Otero family, which left the Otero parents and two of their five children dead. Rader left a note in a library book, and then called Don Granger, an employee of the Wichita Eagle newspaper, to reveal where the letter was stashed. Granger immediately called the police, and they went directly to the library and found the note. A portion of the letter said, quote, I can't stop it, so the monster goes on and hurts me as well as society. It's a big complicated game my friend the monster plays putting victims down following them checking up on them waiting in the dark waiting waiting end quote. "and 4 years later on January 31st of 1978 the Wichita Eagle received a note this time in the form of a poem starting with the words Shirley Locks, Shirley Locks on an index card about the crime in which Shirley Vianne died. Vianne was found dead the previous March. Around the same time, the Eagle newspaper got yet another letter about the Otero case, and the TV station KAKE got a letter referring to the deaths of Vianne and another female named Nancy Fox, who died in December of 1977. These were all victims of Dennis Rader. Rader reportedly drew great pleasure from the media coverage. In fact, in one of his letters he wrote, how many people do I have to kill before I get a name in the paper or some national attention? End quote. Talk about an attention seeker. Although Koberger doesn't match Rader's skill level, like Rader, he too may have been communicating anonymously with the public about the crime. From the recent Dateline special, we know that an unnamed source told Keith Morrison that the police suspect Koberger is the person behind the Papa Roger account. That account made a post on November 30th of 2022 to a Facebook discussion group dedicated to the crime, and in the post, he said that a leather sheath was left behind at the crime scene. The Moscow police had not yet publicly shared that information. If that really was Koberger, this may point to him, like Rader, being unable to control his desire to talk about the crime, to boast about it, and perhaps to even relive it in his mind as he writes about it. If that was Koberger, you can bet the prosecution is going to use that as evidence in their case against him. That will help them prove to jurors that Koberger is the guy who committed this horrible crime. If that happens, then Koberger will have mistakenly outed himself to the authorities because of his ego. And that's exactly how Dennis Rader eventually got caught. His pride got the best of him. Although his last recorded crime was in 1991, it was around the time of the 30th anniversary of the Otero family crime that Rader started dropping hints once again. In December of 2004, a -A KAKE viewer reported a suspicious box which contained a Barbie doll mimicking the murder of one of the Oteros. I wonder if that Barbie belonged to Raider's daughter, Carrie. The box also contained victim Nancy Fox's driver's license, a trophy Raider must have painfully decided to part with for the sake of his little cat and mouse game with the cops. Note that on that recent Dateline special about the crime, Keith Morrison said that his source told him that two IDs of females were found concealed inside a black glove in Brian Koberger's parents' house when it was raided on December 30th of 2022. We don't know who those IDs belong to, but this may indicate that Koberger was already in the process of planning future crimes, or that maybe he had been inside these females' homes or cars at some point and had taken these items as trophies. I'm wondering if one of these IDs belongs to the female student who lived just a short walk away from 1122 King Road and whose suitcase was found in the middle of the road one morning, after she left it in her car. Back to Raider. A month after that suspicious box with the Barbie and Nancy Fox's ID was found, the K.A.K.E. radio station got a postcard leading them to a cereal box with a note that read, Can I communicate with floppy disk and not be traced to a computer? be honest, end quote. The detective Rader was used to communicating with lied to him and said, no, it can't be traced to a specific computer. Rader had failed to hide the metadata from the documents, and this led to his arrest, finally, in 2005. He was given 10 life sentences, and he remains at the El Dorado Correctional Facility with his earliest parole being set for the year 2180. Personally, I don't think he should have ever even deserved to have a parole hearing, even if it's not going to happen until 2180. Like Koberger, Rader studied criminal justice, obtaining a bachelor's degree in administration of justice from Wichita State University. That's interesting. WSU, just like Washington State University. WSU So Rader got his degree in 1979. So the two have that in common. Rader also had a tendency to target women, although he did harm men and children on a few occasions. If Koberger is the perpetrator, then it does appear his target victims were females. Ethan Chapin seems to have been in the wrong place at the wrong time tragically. Raider's M.O. was to wander through Wichita, Kansas until he found a potential victim. He would then enter that victim's home through home invasions. He also stalked his victims beforehand to know when they would come home and who lived with them. When he showed up to commit his crimes, he would have various items with him, including duct tape, rope, a screwdriver, which he would put in a briefcase or a bowling bag. He would also cut off the phone lines to prevent the victims calling for help. Raider found physical pleasure in his crimes. This is so sick, but he became aroused from watching his victims struggle. He is a sexual sadist. On two occasions. He even pleasured himself on the victims' bodies. If the DNA testing we have now had been available back then, Rader likely would have been caught much sooner. Koberger visited the girls' neighborhood on at least 12 occasions, 11 of which were at night. The police believe he may have used these visits to peek in on the girls, to learn the layout of the house, who slept where, to plan how to enter and exit the residence, and to see where security cameras were located. Some retired law enforcement are convinced that he went into the house prior to the crime to check out the layout and maybe even hide away in one of the girls' closets. This would mirror Raider's stalking behavior, so there's a potential similarity but whoever harmed the students did not essay them. The perpetrator's goal seems to have been strictly to take lives, although some argue he may have considered that sharp-edged object a substitute for his pineapple. That's the word Tricia of Web Solutions uses when talking about this part of the male anatomy. Gotta keep the program as PG as possible, right? Of course, if this is the only crime Koberger allegedly committed, then he doesn't have a long history that people can draw information from. It's also possible that he planned to essay a victim, but found himself unable to when he came upon Kaylee and Maddie together in the same bedroom. But I tend to see the perpetrator of this crime as someone who wanted to vent his rage against females and do them in as opposed to being driven by a purely sexual desire. This video is definitely not passing the YouTube censors. At the end of the day, if Koberger is the guilty party, he will likely end up in the same place where Dennis Rader lives, prison. And then maybe he and BTK can share their trade secrets. Write letters to one another instead of writing to newspapers and posting on online message boards. But of course, there is the possibility that Idaho might not be so generous with Coburger as Kansas was with Rader. Coburger might end up somewhere else, and that is in a chair getting a special injection if the chemicals are available or he might be standing or sitting blindfolded or hooded and restrained and then facing a team of sharpshooters. Personally, I think Raider deserved the death penalty just as much, if not more, than whoever did this to Kaylee, Zana, Ethan, and Maddie. Now, I wanted to add some updates on the case as well. Two things to share with you, One, author James Patterson is co-authoring a true crime book about the Idaho 4 case, which he says has echoes of In Cold Blood. In case you aren't familiar with that, In Cold Blood is a nonfiction novel by Truman Capote that was published in 1966. The book details the 1959 murders of four members of the Clutter family in the small farming community of Holcomb, Kansas. The perpetrators were arrested six weeks after the crime and later executed by the state of Kansas. The book describes the lives of both the perpetrators and the victims, but Capote gave special attention to the psychology and background of the perpetrators as well as to their complex relationship before and after the crime. Moving on to the other new happening in the case, according to newly filed court documents dated May 3rd and May 11th, respectively, Kaylee and Maddie's families have legally reserved their right to sue the city of Moscow, Idaho, for damages. The two families' attorney, Shannon Gray, told ABC News that while no lawsuit has yet been filed, the claims would allow the families to sue within two years. The notices do not specify what type of claim the families could make, nor does it state the potential sum of money that they could ask for that is undetermined at this time. Gray said, quote, Filing a tort claims notice is really just a safeguard. It's a safeguard to protect the interests of the families, the victims, and really the whole community around, because if something goes wrong or was done improperly, then someone is held accountable for that, end quote. The Idaho Tort Claims Act is a law that creates liability for tort claims against government entities in Idaho. It allows victims to bring claims against units of government. The act creates rules and requirements for these types of claims. Gray said he had also filed tort claims notices with Washington State as well as Idaho State. Said Gray, those aren't meant to do anything other than protect the interests of the families and the victims moving forward. The mayor of Moscow, Idaho, Art Bedge, said he could not comment on the advice of city council. Hmm. This is sort of upsetting to hear. Moscow, Idaho, in my opinion, is also a victim of this crime. Not sure what to make of this. Let me know what you guys think in the comments, and I'll see you next time on Bed Crime Stories. Now, do me a favor, smash that like button, subscribe to my channel, leave me a comment, consider a membership if you want to keep me here on YouTube, and I'll see you next time.